It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Some headlines that no longer make the headlines. Uh, in one case, Ukraine uh, has retaken 6,000 square kilometers from Russian forces. Uh, an offensive that is in part successful and could be more bad news for Vladimir Putin and his goals, and a Russian retreat in some areas of Ukraine. So what does that mean going into the winter? Because there's another headline that seems to not make the headlines. It's one we've seen before. Russia using energy as a weapon when it comes to winter in Europe. John Jordan, national security analyst, uh, economist, and overseer at the Hoover Institution, uh, will help me tie this all together. As a Russia expert, John, you follow this closely. Uh, You know, I tweeted a while back, you know, we talk about Russia historically, right? Napoleon, Russian winters, you know, you don't fight the Russians in the winter. Are Russians or the Russian troops running into a similar situation in the Ukraine? And what about energy after that? Well, a couple things. Uh, We're going to make some news today, David. There's a lot going on, and we're going to say a couple things that are kind of startling, and I'm going to back it up. Um, To begin with, as you talk about don't fight the Russians in winter, well, that's true, yes and no. Remember the Russians invaded Finland in the late 1930s before World War II and got their uh, butt handed to them because they weren't prepared to fight in the winter because of inadequate preparation, poor supply, and poor logistics. The Finno-Russian War um, is a footnote in history, but an important benchmark here. Um, The news here is I don't think it's going to last that long. Um, The Russian army is actually on the verge of collapse. Um, A couple of things. The Russian army is actually, unlike us, is still logistically organized no differently than they were in World War II. You may recall the 40-mile-long convoy outside of Kiev, which was shredded. Um, They had terrible times where they had a a lack of trucks and ability to distribute Supplies, everything from parkas to food to bullets to spare parts to motor oil. Um, they couldn't deliver it for their troops. Their troops were poorly led, poorly, poorly, very poorly trained, and poorly motivated. Um, the Russian army is, unlike ours, completely dependent uh, logistically on railroads. In fact, the Russian army has 30,000 troops whose only job is railroad repair and railroad specialists. Um, The significance of the last week was the fall of the towns of Kupiansk and uh, and Izum. And those are the two railheads, rail junctions that are necessary for the Russians to send supplies to their uh, forces in the lower in the Donbass near Lugansk and Donetsk, um, which is the the main the primary theater of fighting right now. Those troops are now effectively cut off. Um, And every day that goes by, their combat effectiveness is degraded, even without um, much in the the Ukrainians doing much. And that's on top of their morale and leadership problems. Now, over in Kherson in the south, uh, there's actual reports now that um, numerous Russian units are actually in talks for surrender because they're trapped 
on the west side of the Dnieper River. Um, and the Ukrainians have cut them off there. Um, so they got units with their backs to the river, faces to the Ukrainians, and no means of supply, reinforcement, or escape. Um, something's going to have to give here. And then there's, uh, if you want, we'll get into this in a second, but there's also big-time trouble um, and a sea change in Moscow. Um, specifically, uh, Putin is now has canceled a meeting with the, with the general staff in Sochi that he was supposed to have. And now there's unconfirmed reports that the Russian uh, defense ministry is not going to be sending further reinforcements from Russia. Um, and that may be uh, the Russian high command's way of saying to Putin, um, we're almost done with this. Yeah, this, uh, I believe, special action, not a war, as, as Putin uh, refers to it. Uh, you know, I wonder about that. And, and, yeah, let's get into that, because the high command is one thing, John. But then a question about uh, the Russian municipal deputies and this blowback uh, on other social media that's not blocked by by Russia, by officials, and they, you know, have had a round of elections uh, controlled by the Kremlin aside of the outcome, you know, who counts the votes. Very Stalin-esque of them. Uh, but now it seems as if the internal discontent and maybe even more open rejection of what's going on is beginning to occur. Yeah, and that's and that open um, objection is taking a couple of forms and, you know, is important inside of the Russian eco, uh, information ecosystem in terms of how Russians uh, absorb and process information politically. First of all, you mentioned the municipal deputies from both Moscow and St. Petersburg. That number now is upwards of 30, where it was five a few days ago. Um, these are elected officials saying out loud, these are people that are uh, elected officials that are, you know, low level, but very tend to be very close to their constituents that feel comfortable saying this now. And there's a law that was passed earlier this year that criminalizes, uh, you know, undermining or being critical of the Russian military effort. That's what that, that law, how that law reads. So you have that. Then you have the military bloggers inside of Russia, many of whom are hardcore Putin fans, out and out complaining and, and accusing the, the Putin regime of incompetence. Most specifically, you have Kondorov, the head of the Chechens, who's a uh, devoutly, loyal, um, devoutly, devoutly loyal group to Putin. Their head, Kondorov, saying this is going badly. And this is going wrong and mistakes were made. Now, at some point, you know, the, the Russians up until two weeks ago would have put anybody in jail for this. But now it's kind of gotten to a point where enough people in enough places are saying it where you have to put them all. It's almost impossible now to put the poop back in the horse from a uh, propaganda point of view. What's interesting here is you talk about Stalin-esque propaganda. In the 1930s and 40s, it was possible for countries like Nazi Germany, whose propaganda ministry was headed by Joseph Goebbels, or the Soviet Union, to have complete information control. The North Koreans do this to this day, but that's possible only when people don't have phones and access to the Internet. When people have smartphones and access to the Internet of any sort, that places a constraint um, an absolute constraint on the ability of a regime to contain the truth. They can only do so to shape information to a point. 
And now you have figures um, like uh, Vladimir Solovyov, the, probably the most well-known um, Russian uh, mouthpiece inside of Russia, regime mouthpiece inside of Russia, out and out complaining. Olga Skabayeva complaining. All of these are people that hitherto, you know, two weeks ago, this would have been unthinkable. So once, historically, once these types of events start in motion, um, they're very difficult to stop. And just ask, uh, you know, Erich Honecker of, of East Germany or Ceausescu of Romania how that turned out for them. You know, other things that start coming into mind, and I, I went and started looking at uh, the weather, you know, in Europe, the temperatures, and I looked at the historical track. We've talked about it before. I don't know uh, at this point if it's easy to determine, but you have the Baltic pipeline opening up in October. You have changes being made even in Germany, and I would say they probably are uh, exhibiting austerity uh, style programs in, in energy management because they can't make up or catch up fast enough to replace their dependence on Russia. And of course, Russia says, here's the spigot, we're going to turn it off. So, you know, temperature, weather, if you will, uh, austerity programs, Germany being one of the largest, but France and others dependent on Russian energy, and any offset or increase capacity uh, out of Norway into Denmark and Poland. Uh, is What does that picture look like? Is there any movement, any view that's different from when we discussed this? Uh, well, we started probably well over a month ago, but since then. No, there isn't. Uh, Europe is putting putting everything they can to mitigate uh, the economic and political uh, fallout from um, a Russian cessation of energy shipments. But here's kind of how this is going to, I think, it's going to play out in the, in the real world, is the fact that the Europeans are making these preparations um, and the Europeans are showing absolute resolve. The German, uh, you know, the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbach, was in Kiev the other day. The Europeans are showing no sign of giving in or, or to Putin's demands. And this is important for kind of a different reason, because this tells the Russian elites the Siloviki, the, the people that basically controlled the guns and the jails in Russia, that, that a long-term winter strategy by Putin isn't going to result in uh, a capitulation to Russian demands, that the Russians are going to have to fight this to the finish, and the Russians aren't in a position to do so. Um, so this tells the Rus- the, a lot of the people that are sitting on the sidelines in Russia that, no, Putin's winter strategy probably isn't going to work because it may be really sucky for the Europeans, but they're not, they're not going to cave because there's no sign of that right now. Um, in fact, the German, even the Germans who are pretty weak on this stuff are talking about really upping their military commitment to Ukraine. That's very disheartening to the Russians and uh, an under, pretty much will negate Russia's winter strategy in the eyes of the, the security services and the elites in Moscow. And ultimately, what's going to happen is a lot of these elites in this in the giant Russian kleptocracy, which is what it is, are going to have to decide whether or not um, they want to save the system. They know that at some point, um, the you know the Russian population is going to get tired of this. There's going to be enough families that don't hear from their sons that the Putin's narrative of invincibility has collapsed. That they're inviting 
some sort of bottom-up revolution. And the security services and the elites aren't going to let that happen, and they'll intervene beforehand, not out of any sort of democratic altruism, but to save the system and to save themselves from Putin. So energy, you know, if I'm reading you correctly, not fully in play, and I didn't think it would be after all. It's September. Uh, will it, the reason I use the word austerity uh, is because if those countries, those leaders, decide to go down that road and there will be suffering, there will be a great deal of... I don't know, internal deal-making to get through this. It it, it seems to be smarter in one sense to not let Putin have his effect and let the internal opposition and the internal troubles weaken him even more. Look, you've said it before, there there will be a next person. We don't know who that uh, might be. There can be a lot of strife internally in Russia. You could get somebody like Putin or worse. I have a guess. I have a guess as to who that person might be, but all right, tell, um, do tell if you can. All right, so 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 here, a little background story. I, you know, as you know, I've spent like my, most of my entire adult life studying the Russians. Um, one of Putin's old KGB pals is a guy by the name of Nikolai Patrushev, and he is about Putin's age. He's about seventy-one, and he actually ran the FSB, one of their security services right after Putin did, uh, when Putin first became president. He's a Russian hardliner. His son, Dmitry Nikolaevich, is the current agriculture minister. And he's about 45 years old, um, trained in economics, uh, smooth talking, and he would be acceptable to the security services by virtue of his parentage and is uh, loyal to the system. And would be a face that the, the 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 security services and the Russian elites would be comfortable putting out there. And right now he's kind of an unknown as agriculture minister, but he's connected in all the right places. That if there was a move to save the system and rebrand Russia, uh, and get them out of this, I might. He's my horse. If this if we were if we were doing the pony races, is Dmitry Patrushev. He's my boy. All right. I, I was actually trying to think of the Russian version of the "He's my horse," but I'm not sure if I—I I don't know. I, I, the closest I got were Belgian Frisians, wrong country, but big horses. Uh, th- that said, to go to your economist side a little more on this, and, and I don't know if there's connections there now, but it's a concern. And winter's coming, even here in the United States. Eventually, we're going to get into that. Where we are with the economy, with inflation, we had a report this morning. We have higher, you know, they're stabilizing at a higher number is kind of a bad term, but my term for it. And oil is flat, but yet oil futures seem to be up. The markets, oil, energy, the winter, uh, and the global maybe effect to whatever degree from from Russia's energy supply? I mean, from a global perspective, do we look at a continued or at least a stabilized higher price here in the U.S.? Um, yes and no. Remember, there's different oil products. There's a couple. There's, remember, there's the price of oil, um, which but the, the oil is then refined into the various products, whether it's heating oil or distillates like diesel oil, jet fuel, or gasoline, for example. American energy consumption in the United States actually goes up in the summer. Um, in the winter, yes, there's parts of America that rely more and more on heating oil in the, in the Northeast, 
but actual energy consumption in America is up more so in, in the summer. The problem America has is a refining problem. Remember, the administration has declared war on refiners, too. you got refineries um, shutting down or, or we're, certainly not, we're certainly not expanding capacity, and we're not able to import um, you know, foreign distillates anymore. So remember, there's, so there's a kind of dynamically, it, it, it goes off and on, but there's a, oftentimes refining is the narrow end of the funnel. Yes, it is going to, uh, and there is going to be political pain, but primarily in Europe, and Europe's doing everything they can to mitigate it. Even the Ukraine uh, recently offered to Poland uh, coal. Um, the Germans over here are now not shutting down uh, nuclear power plants. And everybody in the world is trying to get their hands on liquefied natural gas. But again, it's not just liquefied natural gas. It's the, it, the, the, it is the ports that have to unload it, that have to gasify it, turn it from liquid to gas. And then it has to be distributed in pipelines. And uh, right now, uh, for example, um, it, it costs three times as much to charter. It costs over $100,000 now a month to charter a, a liquefied natural gas uh, carrier than it did a few months ago. And the country that makes most of those specialized ships is South Korea, and they're not taking any new orders until 2027. So you have a, a, you know, so you have patchwork of mitigation efforts going on in Europe, but uh, it looks like Europe has actually, I think, has done a better than expected job of uh, preparing for this. But it's going to be years before they're able to fully stabilize their energy markets uh, in the absence of um, shipments from Russia. You know, last point here, John, and I know we're going a little extra on this, but uh, there's some there's just a lot developing here. Uh, Putin, by the way, and his defense minister have left Moscow and they're headed to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization conference. Uh, you know, kind of the, I don't know if you want to call it the competition, the counter to the UN and the G7. Uh, but anything to read into that, even though he's just headed there now, literally now from Moscow and with his defense minister. Well, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to get all conspiratorial, but uh, it's an interest. Putin kind of has to go to this, right? He can't be too much of a public loss of face for him not to go to this, and it look, it would smack of desperation, certainly in Russian eyes. And then he has the meeting with President Xi in Uzbekistan. Um, he has to, he has to go, but if you think about it, um, the you know every other the last two times there was a coup attempt, one successful, one not in Russia. It involved when the rush would happen when the Russian leader left town. Most recently, when Gorbachev went on vacation, there was that harebrained KGB effort to remove him, if memory, and that was during our lifetime. And then the time that Khrushchev was actually removed by Brezhnev happened when that was all engineered when uh, when uh, Khrushchev was actually on vacation in Crimea so I don't you know so you incur risks when things are going wrong when you leave town um, how much of a risk for Putin that is right now I, it's impossible to say from this far away but uh, it's certainly something that they would think about It'll be interesting, my friend, uh, to see how winter plays out uh, in all the things we've just discussed. Uh, keep a close eye. I know you do. I will. Thank you for having me on, David.
Always. John Jordan, uh, former naval officer as well, uh, national security analyst and economist, makes it uh, a more rounded conversation on these issues. You can join me live on The David Webb Show, Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east, on Sirius XM Patriot 125.